between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that pays homage to Crom, who in return just sits there on his mountain ignoring us all because, well, because he's a bit of an old grump. But you know what? He's our old grump. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And today, Conan makes a friend, steals a jade snake, and reunites with a former lover of the nighttime. In other words, we're looking at Conan the Barbarian, issue number eight from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of August 1971, but it hit the stands in May. It sold for 15 cents, and the title of the story is The Keepers of the Crypt. It was written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Thomas Sutton and Tom Palmer, and the letters were by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! As our story opens, Conan, having fled Numalia in the previous issue, you know, after he looked into the golden bowl and saw the face of evil, the Stygian sorcerer Thothamon. Scary, scary, don't we look mean? Anyway, he's now in Corinthia, Numidia's neighbor to the southeast, and he's standing above and looking down into a rocky gorge. Below, Winding their way through the gorge are a line of torch-bearing Corinthian soldiers who are out hunting for a certain young Sumerian. Conan watches them for a bit before triggering an avalanche, burying the soldiers beneath tons of rock. Conan climbs down into the gorge to inspect his handiwork, and satisfied that all of the soldiers are dead, he sets off. He only manages to make it about two steps, however, when one of the soldiers, who is still very much alive, calls out to Conan, telling him to turn around and make ready to die. The soldier, Captain Bergen, is a gunderman and survivor of the Battle of Venarium, an Aquilonian stronghold built within the borders of Sumeria, which Conan, along with his fellow countrymen, attacked and laid waste to just a few years back. Mass genocide's the most exhausting activity one can engage in. Bergen and Conan cross swords for a few panels, until eventually Conan kills the man dead before walking away, leaving the corpse in the tall grass. Heading east, Conan comes across an ancient abandoned city. As he explores the ruins, Conan is attacked by a dragon, which, after two and a half pages of fighting and running, Conan manages to slay. Then, spying a great temple in the center of the city and figuring that where there is a temple, there will be treasure Conan sets out at once. Finding the ornate doors of the temple unlocked, Conan is about to enter when Captain Bergen, the unkillable gunderman, arrives, ready to throw down with the young Sumerian once more. It seems that when the two fought earlier, Conan had given the guy a great big chop across the neck with his sword, but Bergen was wearing chainmail, and Conan didn't think to check to see if he had actually killed the man before walking away. Bet he never makes that mistake again, because now Bergen is back 
and ready to continue their life and death struggle. Conan, however, has a better idea. He tells Bergen that there is bound to be treasure in the temple, treasure that they can split. And Bergen agrees, sheathing his sword and entering the temple with the barbarian. Inside, of course, they find gold and jewels all over the place, along with six lifeless Stygian-looking mummies that are decorating the walls. Bergen guesses that they have just found the lost city of Lanjiao, which, legend says, was the richest of ancient cities. So rich, in fact, that it made the gods jealous. And so in their envy, they drove the people of Lanjiao mad, which I guess gods are wont to do. I'm a god, I'm not the god. Among the gold coins and precious gems, Conan finds a great cobra made of jade and covered in precious stones. He decides that he's going to take the Jade Serpent and that he'll leave the rest to Bergen. The good captain, however, well, he kind of wants the Jade Serpent as well. So the two play a quick game of cubes. Highest roll wins the snake. Conan, of course, wins. And so he scoops up the Jade Serpent, placing it in a sack as Bergen fills other sacks with more treasure. This awakens the six lifeless Stygian-looking mummies, the guardians of the lost treasure of Lan Zhao, and both Conan and Bergen fight for their lives as they flee the temple, each with their own booty. And, of course, their own share of the treasure. <laughs> I make myself happy. Once outside in the light of the sun, the mummies turn to ash. But before the two treasure hunters even have a second to count their lucky stars, the entire city begins collapsing around them. Conan and Bergen run, splitting up every man for himself as buildings crash down practically atop them and flames erupt from the streets. Conan makes it out of the city alive, but with no sign of the Gunderman. Conan figures him dead and sets out alone. The barbarian makes his way to a nameless tavern in a nameless Corinthian city where, lo and behold, he runs into Jenna, the thieving blonde woman that Conan saved from the giant bat back in issue number six. She's fearful of the barbarian, worried that Conan might want a bit of vengeance, considering that, you know, she stole all that gold from him. But Conan's just happy to see a familiar face, and so he forgives her. He then takes a sack full of the gold coins and gemstones that he'd taken from Lan Zhao and dumps it out on the table in front of her, only to find that the treasure, like the mummy guardians, have been turned to ash. But not to worry. He still has that jade serpent in another sack, which he hands over to Jenna. She immediately drops the sack onto the floor when it begins moving in her hands. But before Conan can suss out just what the frick is going on, a group of Corinthian soldiers, along with the magistrate, burst into the tavern to arrest Conan. They're there to take the barbarian into custody so that they can extradite him back to Nemedia for the crime of murdering the governor's niece, who, if you recall, was actually killed by the man-serpent in the previous issue. Conan says as much, but the soldiers either don't believe him, don't care, or maybe a little of both. In fact, they even mention that Demetrio, the chief detective guy from the previous issue, well, he vouched for Conan as well, but nah, the governor wants blood, and they want it from Conan. But then the magistrate notices the sack that Jenna had dropped, the sack containing the jade serpent, and he figures he's about to get paid. And so he picks up the sack and reaches into it to get his prize, only to find a live snake in the bag, 
which bites him on the hand, killing him. Killing him dead! Conan and Jenna, taking advantage of the drama that surrounds the killing of a Corinthian magistrate by a great big snake, flee from the tavern. When the soldiers go to give chase, the remaining patrons in the tavern bar their way, allowing Conan and Jenna enough time to jump on a horse and ride to freedom. Yo, yo, fuck the police. Fuck, fuck, fuck the police. Yo, fuck them. Okay, so Keepers of the Crypt was adapted from a one-page outline for a Conan story written by Robert E. Howard that was to be called The Hall of the Dead. And by the way, before we go any further, I've decided to start including in my show notes, beginning with this episode, a list of the various sources I use to put this and future episodes together. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, yeah, look down in the show notes. Of course, I hate doing research, and so you may not find many sources. Anyway, so this outline, again, written by Robert E. Howard, was, of course, an unfinished Conan story that had been lost until Glenn Lord, the literary agent for the Howard estate, found it in 1966, along with other unfinished tales among some of Howard's papers. L. Sprague de Camp took that outline and in what's called a posthumous collaboration with Howard, finished the story, publishing it first in the February 1967 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and then as part of the first of the Lancer paperback collections of Conan Tales, which was just called Conan. This collection was published in 1967, and it features an amazing, an amazingly gorgeous Frank Frazetta cover depicting a moment from Rogues in the House. And it was one of the two books that, as I mentioned last week, was in my house growing up, though we didn't have the first printing. Our copies were reprintings from Ace, who took over the publishing at some point. Anyway, it's important to note here that Marvel Comics by this point didn't have permission to publish any of the posthumous collaborations. But in this case, Glenn Lord provided Roy Thomas with a copy of that one-page outline for the Hall of the Dead, which, like I said, Roy used as the basis for Keepers of the Crypt. Roy did make a number of changes, however, and honestly, I have yet to read either the full outline or DeCamp's version of the story. So I only know about the changes that he made because Roy wrote about those changes in that wonderful book that I look at each time I put together one of these episodes, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one. There's actually two volumes available, but I haven't gotten into volume two yet. If you don't have this book, either volume one or volume two, I have placed a pair of affiliate links in the show notes, one for each volume. So not only can you go out and get those books, you can throw a little cheddar my way at the same time. See how that works? Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Anyway, the changes Roy made to the story were made mainly to help build a sense of continuity among the issues as they move along. And so that's why they use the title Keepers of the Crypt instead of the Hall of the Dead, because they kind of wanted to separate this story from the other one to show folks that this one is a little different. By the way, Keepers of the Crypt, that title, it is a nod to the Crypt Keeper from the old EC horror comics. Oh, hello, kiddies. <laughs> now, Dark Horse did do their own version of The Hall of the Dead, which appeared in Conan issues 29, 30, and 31. They were written by 
Hellboy creator Mike Mignola with art by Carrie Nord. Letters were by Richard Starkings and the colors were by David Stewart. These three issues were published in June, July, and August of 2006. And I did read those issues in preparation for this episode. So I have an idea what the outline contained because the Dark Horse adaptations tend to stick fairly close to the material that they're adapting. But since I, again, still don't know exactly what was in the outline, I don't even know how the Dark Horse version may or may not have differed. They It may have been a straight up line for line adaptation or they could have taken some liberties. I don't know. However, with that in mind, we'll compare both versions to each other. And looking at both the Marvel version and the Dark Horse version, all of the basic elements, well, they're, they're pretty much the same. Conan is pursued by some soldiers led by a Gunderman captain, and Conan drops an avalanche on top of them. The Gunderman captain survives, the two of them fight, and the captain appears to die once again. Now, in the original outline in the Dark Horse version, the story takes place in Zamora. The name of the Gunderman captain is Nestor, and the soldiers want to arrest Conan for his successes at thievery. He's basically become such a famous thief that the Zamorans have come to arrest him. In the Marvel version, of course, we know that the story takes place in Corinthia. The name of the Gunderman captain is Bergen. And the soldiers want to arrest Conan for the murder of the niece of the governor of Namedia. So, as I said, the changes made here by Roy Thomas were done in an effort to establish a bit of that continuity that we as readers of comics love oh so much. So since the previous issue took place in Namedia, it made more sense for this issue to take place in Corinthia and not Zamora as the original did, you know, geographically speaking. It also helps to set up what's going to happen over the next few issues leading up to issue number 11, which is an adaptation of Rogues in the House, which just happens to be one of my favorite Conan tales so far. Also, in the Marvel version, they include a flashback to the Battle of Venarium, which if you've read the recent free comic book day Conan issue from Titan, you know that the battle is pretty much the focus of that issue. The story of the battle is also told in Marvel's Conan the Adventurer, number one, from April of 1994. That was written by Roy Thomas. It had art by Raphael Kanan, letters by John Costanza, and colors by Nelson Yomtov. And finally, in the Robert E. Howard universe of Conan stories, the Battle of Venarium was first mentioned in the story Beyond the Black River, which was written by Robert E. Howard. And it's one of his stories that I haven't gotten around to yet. I haven't read it or listened to it. And uh, I hope to do so soon. So briefly, <laughs> which is a funny word for me. Slightly silly. The Battle of Venarium is, well, here, let me read to you what it says on the first page of the Titan Free Comic Book Day issue. Legends can be forged in unlikely places. The legend begins in the gray-dripped land of Samaria at a remote fortress known as Venarium. When Aquilonians pushed their borders northward with eyes on conquest, they destroyed three Samarian villages. Arrogantly, they assumed the disparate barbarians of the region would flee from their military might. Instead, more than 40 tribes united in secret, their blood aboil with fury, ready to slay these insolent Southern invaders. 
First to surge forth is a warrior eager to prove his worth, the savage son of a blacksmith who would one day wear a crown, Conan the Barbarian. That free comic book day issue, by the way, was published by Titan Comics on May 10th, 2023. It was written by Jim Sub with art by Rob Delator, colors by Jose Villarubia, and letters by Richard Starking. So basically the Battle of Venarium was Conan and his fellow Sumerians attacking the Aquilonian stronghold of Venarium that had been built in Sumeria in an effort to expand Aquilonia's kingdom. It is an important moment in Conan's life because it is his first battle. It's his first test as a warrior. And it was directly following the battle that Conan left Sumeria for the first time and set out to find his fortune out there in the great wide world. In this Marvel issue, Keepers of the Crypt, it says that the Battle of Venarium was three years ago. And since we know that Conan is at least 20, based on Conan the Barbarian issue number one, he would have been just 17 during the battle. Now, there's a novel of the Battle of Venarium that was published in 2004, I think. I haven't read it. It was written by Harry Turtledove, and I think he had Conan as 12 years old during the Battle of Venarium in that novel. So we're going to go by the, the Marvel age, as it were, because we're reading the Marvel comics. I should also mention one last thing here about the Battle of Venarium. In Conan the Adventurer, issue number one, which, again, as I say, it was published in 1994. It, it was after Roy Thomas had left the book. You know, I think he did like 250 issues or something of Conan the Barbarian. He left, and then they started a new title in 94 called Conan the Adventurer, and Roy Thomas came back to write a couple of issues. And the first one he wrote dealt with the battle at Venarium, and they have Conan during this battle wearing that horned helmet that I dislike so much that Conan got rid of a few issues back. But it also shows that it is during this battle that he acquires this, this decorative necklace with the big red and black discs on it that he's, he's wearing now. He got that three years ago during that battle. Good stuff. Good information, right? Yeah, it is. I know. So back to Keepers of the Crypt slash Hall of the Dead. In each version of the story, Conan enters a ruined city, battles a monstrous being, and kills it by dropping something heavy on its head. From what I could find out regarding Howard's outline, the monstrous being was described just like that, a monstrous being. In the Marvel version, we know that they called it a dragon, though B.W. Smith chose to draw it as a giant Gila monster. And in the Dark Horse version, it's a giant frog slash salamander thing with a long tentacled tongue. And though I haven't read the DeCamp version of the Hall of the Dead, as I understand it, the monstrous being in his version of the story is depicted as a giant slug. The rest of these versions are all very similar for the rest of the story, except in Keepers of the Crypt. The woman that Conan meets in the tavern is Jenna from issue number six. Hello, what have we here? She, I can tell you, will stick around for a few more issues. Little tease there. Now, before I get to my thoughts on Keepers of the Crypt and as well as the Dark Horse version, I wanted to point out, in case you missed it, page 14, panel number two. Look at all the coins there that Barry Windsor Smith has drawn. And if you look closely, you'll see a fun hidden message 
placed among those coins by the artist that says, I must be mad to sit here drawing all these coins. I think stuff like that is really fun when you stumble across them. Now, I totally would have missed it because I'm not the most observant person in the world. And had I not been doing research for this episode, I, I, pro- I probably just would have missed it altogether. Enough talk. All right. So as I always do, when there are multiple adaptations of one of these Conan stories, I like to pick my favorite. But honestly, I am rather partial to both of these. Keepers of the Crypt is my favorite of the Marvel Conan the Barbarian issues so far. I thought it was a fun, intricate, well put together story. And I just straight up loved the art in the issue. B.W. Smith is really coming into his own and he's really bringing it here in this issue, especially with the dragon and the mummies. But my favorite bit in the entire issue, as far as the art goes, is Captain Bergen. There's just something about that guy, about his look, the the design of the character that I like. I can't really explain it, but I, I just really like that character overall. Of course, how can you not like a guy who just keeps dying by Conan's hand and then yet keeps getting up and keeps coming back? I hope we see him in a future story. Now, the Dark Horse version, well, it was simply freaking amazing. While Mike Mignola wrote the adaptation, he didn't do the art. And yet, from page one, throughout all three issues, you could both see and feel his influence just dripping off of those pages. I mean, you had all the frogs, you had the mummies, you had the giant salamander frog beast thing with the tongue that had all the tentacles coming off of it. I mean, all of that has this... I mean, this total Hellboy Seed of Destruction vibes that just ooze out from between the panels, especially with the addition of the freaky magic words that are chanted throughout the three issues that are in some kind of weird, mystic, wizard language. I mean, had I not known that Mike Mignola had a hand in these three issues, I still would have known. And the art... I mean, it doesn't look like Mignola. It's, it's, it's Carrie Nord. I love Carrie Nord on Conan. I always have. And he has been there on these Conan books, these, these Dark Horse Conan books. He was there from the beginning. I don't know how long he ended up staying on the book, but here he is in issues 29, 30, and 31. I know he wasn't on the handful of issues after and an issue or two before, but I love his art. I love him on Conan. And with these three issues, I don't know that I've ever really experienced, really experienced such a synergistic mixture of story and art before this, except, of course, for books in which the writer and the artist were one and the same. And it makes me wonder if, along with providing a script, I wonder if Mignola did breakdowns on all the pages, even if they were just super basic, that Nord then came in and and provided his art, kind of following uh, storyboards, as it were. Or maybe Mignola's script was just hyper-specific. I don't know. It it, it doesn't really matter at this point. All I can tell you is that Mignola and Nord working together was something special and was a nearly perfect combination for a Conan story. And, you know, just last year, Maybe it was last year. I don't remember when. Feels like it was last year. It doesn't matter when it was. But I recall telling folks that I really wish Mignola 
would have done a Conan book or that he does one in the future, both writing and art. But now having read these three issues, I don't know. He and Nord together might be an even better option. I just, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. It's, it was just a glorious three issues from top to bottom. And there was just something about the two of them working together that this could have fit in, in the Hellboy universe. This could have been like a uh, ancient legend that maybe some mystic in the Hellboy universe told as a, as a story to everybody. It just, the, the, the supernatural side of it, the, the, again, all the frogs, you know, if you've read Seed of Destruction, you know, there's a lot of frogs in that four issue mini. It's just, it felt, you know, it just dripped Mike Mignola. And yet with Carrie Nord's art, it, it made it even better. I, I would, I almost prefer, I feel like after reading it, I don't want to see this story told with Mike Mignola writing and drawing it. I, I think it's, it's pretty, pretty much perfect the way it is. And, you know, I know it sounds like I preferred that Dark Horse version over the Marvel one. And I don't know, maybe I did, but I honestly don't know that I feel comfortable even comparing the two. Each version has something about them that made them stand out all on their own, made them two completely separate stories. You know, the, the, the separation of the years between the two stories and the way stories were told when the Marvel version came out and the way stories are told when the Dark Horse version came out. It's just, I think it's unfair really to, to compare them because they were both excellent examples of Conan stories in comic book form. And what's funny on both, I think they both had the creative team just working together seamlessly and firing on all cylinders. And they each managed to craft a, a pair of amazing stories. What did you think? Email me at stevenorelse at gmail.com and give me your thoughts. Speaking of which, how about we do a little listener's feedback? Okay, so I got a few of them this week, all of them in reference to last episode in which I talked about Conan the Barbarian issue number seven. I don't know why I keep saying barbarian that way. I got to stop. Conan the Barbarian issue number seven, the lurker within. So I'll start with a comment that was left over at the website, conan.stevenorelse.com. And it was left by none other than Ed Moore, fellow podcaster and co-host of the Superman Super Show, where Ed's talking about Golden Age Superman books with, well, <laughs> that would be me. Ed, posting under the handle of Miskatonic, says... From the beginning, I noticed that BWS still has some work to do on faces. They look kind of off to me, and here, last issue, I thought things were looking cool. Maybe right now, faces are still a work in progress. Conan's face on page three has a definite Chris Velusi look to it. We find out, up to this point, Conan has never driven. Nice sequence of him breaking into the museum, starting with the swimming panel, shows all the different things he had to overcome to break in. I like that the stories have been one-offs, but I hope we see more of Set and his followers in the future. So yeah, Conan's face on page three, I can totally see that. Uh, Chris Velusi, for those who don't know, and if I'm even pronouncing the name correctly, he is the creator of Ren and Stimpy. And yeah, that Conan face on page three, I know just the one you're talking about, Ed. I think it's the lips more than anything, but yeah, I, I totally see it. 
I agree as well in that I too am enjoying that all of these stories so far are done in ones. And yet Roy has been really good about adding things here and there to tie them together, to, to give you that bit of continuity that, that I know you, Ed, you, you love, you love it so much. And as far as seeing Set and his followers in the future, I know we see more Thoth Amon because I feel like he's basically Conan's Lex Luthor in the comics based on memories of me reading a handful of Conan issues in the 80s. But I find that interesting as well, considering that Conan and Thoth Amon, they never met face to face in any of the Robert E. Howard stories. But yeah, thanks, Ed. Thanks for the email. Appreciate it. Well, no, geez, it wasn't an email. Thank you for leaving comments on the website. I just noticed just the other day that you had been doing that. I, I typically don't look there because nobody ever does that. And I noticed that you did. So thank you. And it's a reminder to everybody else. That's just one more way that you can provide feedback is over at conan.stevenorelse.com. All right. Our next bit of feedback is an email uh, from Billy D, who also is a fellow podcaster. He's the host of The Brave and the Bob, among many other podcasts. In fact, Billy and I may be getting together soon to talk about, eh, I don't want to say just yet. How's that for a tease? Anyway, Billy says, hey, dude, great job covering this series. My memory of reading the Dark Horse books is fleeting at best, but I'd love to go back and check them out as I thought they were solid. I'll admit I didn't have very high expectations. Your segment about L. Sprague de Camp was good. And yes, Howard purists hate him. They can be a fickle bunch, though, just my two cents slash experience. I'll throw a vote for you to just stay with the classic Marvel comics and novels, as I feel interweaving newer books would throw off the continuity and flow of the show. Again, good stuff, and I look forward to more. Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange. So, Billy, yeah, the Dark Horse stuff so far from what I've been reading in regard to, you know, the adaptations I'm using on this show, they have been pretty darn good, especially, you know, like the one I just gushed all over earlier in the episode, The Hall of the Dead by Mike McNoy and Carrie Nord, which again is in Conan issues 29, 30 and 31. As far as El Sprague de Camp, I really don't have an opinion yet because I haven't read any of his original Conan stuff, nor his posthumous collabs with the ghost of Robert E. Howard. But from what I've learned, the rumor has it anyway, is that the reason DeCamp rewrote a bunch of the completed Howard Conan tales was that he had some sort of issue with Conan's writing, which to me just sounds crazy. I mean, sure, Veil of the Lost Women is super racist, and I will be talking about it at some point in the future. But as far as Howard's style, as far as Howard's writing style, I love it. But yeah, I should be diving into some of those DeCamp stories sometime soon. I'm, I'm going to try to track down reprints of those Lancer slash Ace paperback collections. And yeah, that's a vote for not breaking up the episodic flow of these Marvel Conan book episodes by talking about the new series from Titan. More on that in a bit. First, I have just a couple of quick hits from Twitter regarding the previous episode. At Go Ask Crom. My favorite line, the dude just exudes violence and death. I mean, yeah, he does. Conan really does. And then the other one comes from at Lee Peacock 2013. Sword Brother, another great episode. My vote 
is for you to review the new Conan issues as they are released. It will be a nice blend of the new and the old. Okay, so that's one vote for talking about the new Titan Conan issues here among the Marvel issues. So, yeah, that's a 50-50 split, folks, because this vote and Billy D's vote of opposition are the only two votes I got. You know, if you remember, in the last episode, I asked y'all what you thought about me taking one episode a month to talk about the new Conan series coming out from Titan. I got just two votes, 50-50 split, so it's obviously a very polarizing issue. But I have made the decision to go ahead and talk about the new Titan issues as they come out. I'm just not going to talk about them here on this podcast. So where then, Stephen? Where are you going to be talking about them? Well, just recently, I finally got around to my reboot of the Stephen or Else podcast. This is the podcast in which I get to do whatever I damn well please. You can find it at stephenorelse.com. So yeah, I'll talk about those Titan Conan books on that show. In fact, the Stephen or Else podcast feed, which is, of course, where you're going to get the Stephen or Else podcast, the podcast in which I get to do whatever I damn well please also has every episode of every other podcast I do. So really, if you want to hear all of my shows, that's the feed you need to be subscribed to. That way you won't miss any of the episodes. You'll get all my Marvel Conan talk on that feed when I put up episodes of Hither Came Conan. And then you'll also get all of my Titan Conan talk when I put up those episodes of Steven or Else. So yeah, go do that. Go subscribe. The first Titan comic lands on July the 26th. So look for that episode of Stephen or Else soon after that. Episode one of Stephen or Else is currently up now. It's got some audio skits in it and a fake commercial. And I talk about Young Blood number one from 1992. So yeah, go give it a listen. The link is in the show notes. With that, I want to thank everybody who has provided feedback to the show. I hope I didn't miss anyone. How about you? You got something you want to say? You got something you want me to read out on a future episode? Send me an email, stephenorelse at gmail.com. Do it! Do it now! Ah, uh, here we are, folks. We have come to the end of the show. Thank you for hanging out with me today. Now that uh, season three of Event or Else is complete... And if you don't know what I'm talking about, one of the other mini podcasts I do, and I mean mini as an M-A-N-Y, not M-I-N-I, uh, is a show called Event or Else in which I'm going through most every major Marvel and DC event, one issue at a time, one episode at a time, and I'm doing them by season. Season one was Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. Season two is Crisis on Infinite Earths. And season three, which just wrapped up this week, was Secret Wars 2. Now that I'm finished with Season 3, I'm taking a break from Event or Else, and I am going to try to get Hither Came Conan on somewhat of a regular weekly schedule rather than every two weeks. But I'm not going to promise you anything because anytime I make any kind of statements like, this is what I'm definitely going to do, something always happens, and it torpedoes whatever announcement I made. What I can tell you is that the next episode we got coming up for Hither Came Conan, it's going to be episode number nine, and we're going to be looking at Conan the Barbarian, issue number nine from June of 1971. It's called Garden of Fear, and we get to see what happened to Conan and Jenna 
after they made their escape from the Corinthian Tavern at the end of this issue. Now, sometime after that, I am going to try to start putting together some episodes in which I'll be talking about some of those Robert E. Howard original stories that either weren't adapted into a Marvel comic or their adaptations are so far down the line that I may never get to them. And maybe, just maybe, I'll start with the worst one of them all, The Veil of the Lost Women. Until then, folks, keep them swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye. Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at stephenorelse. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Did Conan fight? Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. And is satisfied that all of the soldiers are dead. I said it wrong because I'm stupid. Along with six. Lifeless, Stygian-looking monkeys. Monkeys? <laughs> the guardians of the lost treasure of... Fart on my head. I don't, I don't know why my go-to when I mess up is the word fart. She immediately drops... <coughs> Conan says... Conan says as much. But the... Conan says as much. But the soldiers... See, I'm I'm going off script and it's just throwing me off, but I'm I'm gonna do it. I will handle it. I handle my business. The remaining patrons in the tavern bar. Tavern bar. It's not a tavern bar. They're gonna bar his their blah. See? When the soldiers go to give chase, the remaining patrons in the tavern did fart on their heads. When the one for the money, two for some chicken, three to get ready because this beat's been kicking. And then as part of the first of the Lancer paperback collections of farm living is alive for me. If you ever get a chance, go on YouTube and look up the song Hillbilly Happy Smash by Psychofunkapus. This here's called the Hillbilly Happy Smash. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. All right, I got to get back to this episode. Here we go. In the Marvel version, of course, the story takes place in... I keep doing this stippy stabby. In the Marvel version, of course, the story takes place in Corinthia, 
The name... <clears throat> in the Marvel version, of course, the story takes place in Korea. Why the fuck am I having such problems with that? In the Marvel version, the story takes place in Korea. In the Marvel version, of course, the story takes place in... Fuck me! In the Marvel version, of course, the story takes place in... Why in the hell? Why in the hell? Why can't I do that? This is not the drama crazy! Take a drink, everybody. Take a drink. Usually when you take a drink and you start it fresh, everything seems like okay. Let's let's give that a try. Take a drink. Drink up, everybody. That was a good drink. Iced coffee. That's what I like. I like that iced coffee. No sweeteners added because I'm stupid and crazy. Anyway, here we go. In the Marvel version, the story takes place in... Wow. Still can't do it. Uh. Never before in the history of motion pictures has there been a screen presence so commanding, so powerful, so deadly. He's Conan the Librarian. Can you tell me where I can find a book on astronomy? Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? Conan the Librarian. I'm sorry. These books are a little overdue. <laughs> Conan, the librarian. Crumb. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.